such a beautiful time of year, isn't it? Lent is such a beautiful time of year. We've been celebrating it. We come out of Advent, and then we enter into another season of remembering uh, the passion of our Lord and all that He has done. It's such a glorious time. A time to remember what He has done. A time to pray. A time to give. I'm reminded... uh, this is such an interesting thing. I, my, my mind actually traps scripture verses from time to time, but in, uh, in Corinthians, where it actually says that, that our Savior, that he gave up all of his riches and glory, and he came uh, to live in poverty. And at one point in time in the Gospels, as he's walking from town to town, uh, in his seasons of popularity, there's this one part where like a woman shouts out, like, blessed is the womb who bore you. You know, I mean, she was just probably just caught up in the passion of all that Christ was doing. And and Jesus said, you know, blessed rather is he who believes in the words uh, that God has given through us. And at another time when a similar situation occurs, um, he, he just shouts out and you get this idea that the people didn't even know what he was saying. I mean, he knew what he was saying. And we look back on it now and we understand it. But he's like, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And you know, the people are probably like, what in the world is he talking about? What is he saying at all? And yet we know, and Paul even wrote about it, that he gave up glory in heaven and all of his riches, and he lived a life of poverty and servitude uh, here on the earth. And then we, through his poverty, exchange the reality of our poverty and death because of sin and gain his riches. Why should I gain from his reward? And the reality of it is is that we sing songs like that and more will be written until the day when he returns in fullness of, of, the, of the truth of the gospel. It's a time, this, this season of time is a time to remember, a time to reflect on who he is, that even though he is the master, he came to serve. And so he says, if I'm among you as a servant, then if you're going to be my follower, how also should you serve? It's a time to remember the giving of our Lord and then to ask him by his spirit to illumine in our own minds how is it that you're wanting us to give. It's a time to mourn. To mourn the great cost of our salvation and what the Lord did because of his great love. And at the same time, it's a time to celebrate. Isn't it interesting that in the scriptures we find this and my mind always goes back to uh, in 2 Timothy where it says that all Scripture has been given to us by the breathing of God's Spirit and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for instruction and righteousness that the man of God might be adequate and equipped. And you have in the love of God and in His Word this beautiful contrast of mourning and celebration that happens. Mourning and celebration the correction that comes and the reproof that comes along with the equipping. There is, a, there is a terrible thing that the Son of God suffered at the hands of His creation and then was nailed to a tree and suspended between heaven and earth and that the, the sin of man was placed on Him. It is a terrible thing. And at the same time, we know that it is our victory in that and in certain ways the scripture even says that it was for the joy set before him that he endured what he endured. And in our life, there are, there are reciprocating truths as we seek to pursue the Lord, these seasons of sorrow and mourning, 
as well as seasons of celebration, and sometimes they coexist at the same time. A death of something that leads to our joy. And it's, it's phenomenal. The scriptures are filled with examples of this. This is a season to mourn and to celebrate the passion of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his victory, and our deliverance. And today, as we open up the scriptures, we're going to look at that again and sing his praise. And we're going to do it again next week and each and every day, learning to sing the joys of the kingdom of God, the joys of our Lord, because it is the joy of the Lord that the scriptures say is what? Our strength. Our strength. So open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Famous, famous passage. Famous passage. And that's where we're going to start in John chapter 3. You guys know this story that Nicodemus came, a teacher of the Jews, came to Jesus at night, and he came to him and he's like, like I, I don't understand it. I'm not, I'm not getting it all. I, I, I'm connecting a little bit with what you're doing. In fact, I can see what you're doing, and I believe that no one can do the things that you're doing unless that they're from God. And, and this was a real struggle that was going on because there were a lot of believers or a lot of people at that time and even people among Nicodemus' teaching group that were saying, hey, look, at the reason why that man is doing these things is because he's empowered by demonic power. And by the power of Beelzebub, he's doing these things. And so there was a huge controversy going on among the, among the Jewish leaders and the teachers, and some of them, it wasn't all of them, but some of them were like, hey, like Nicodemus, I need to find out what's going on here because there's a rhythm of things here that smells right, and I've been studying the scrolls, but I don't get it all. And he comes to Jesus at night, and Jesus begins to teach, and he even reminds him, like, hey, you're a teacher in Israel. You should know some of these things. I'm going to remind you of some things that you already know from scrolls, and I'm going, to, I'm going to try and apply them now to the things that you're seeing going on right in front of you right now. And, and ultimately, he gets to this passage in John 3.16, where uh, right after he says to Nicodemus, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up so that the sting of death and the, the death bite of sin can be removed. And why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so Jesus is actually talking with Nicodemus and, and he's reminding him of things. You know, he even ties in right before this passage, remember what happened in the wilderness when the fiery serpents came and bit people and then God gave a sign so that people can look by faith and be healed of a death sting, of a bite. You look at the symbol and you will live. Not because the symbol was precious or, or special or that it held some sort of uh, power in and of itself, but it's a reminder of of the fact of the gospel, and he's pointing to these things, and he's saying, God loves the world, Nicodemus, 
And part of the struggle of what you're seeing in the middle of the controversy and the sides that are being taken and everything that's happened is because God has sent me into the world. He has sent me into the world so that we can have right relationship with him. And he, he hearkens back and reminds him all the way back. I'm thinking in this conversation, we don't have the whole conversation. I'm using a little bit of sanctified imagination that the Holy Spirit would be re- bringing to Nicodemus's remembrance these things of the fall and of what happened back in the Garden of Eden, in the creation story, when, when God actually put right in the garden the two trees. And there were a lot of other trees besides that, but one of them, the tree of life, and another, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it, it's so interesting because you have these trees, and in the end of the story, too, in the book of Revelation, we have the tree of life again at the end of the, at the, end of the story as well. And, you know, the Bible even teaches that there's a day coming for those who, who, who have believed like Jesus is talking about, that we will have an opportunity to eat of the tree of life. That, 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 that I, I literally believe that one day that tree is going to bear fruit and I'm going to be able to taste of it because of what Christ has done. But in the garden, he's reminded him of the fall and of what happened, that something significant happened that changed the original creation and brought in a level of darkness into the world. And that was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree of which that God told Eve and Adam, don't eat of this tree. And, and, and what happens? This knowledge of good and evil, that in the day that you eat this fruit, darkness is going to come into your life. Do not do it. In the day that you eat of this fruit, death is going to happen. In the day that you eat it, you will die. And uh, I, think, I think about this frequently, what actually is the knowledge of good and evil? What was it? What was it that it was a knowledge that God had and it did not uh, do anything to impinge his holiness or his righteousness or his goodness, but in the day that man gains that knowledge, it ends up in our death. And I'm going to tell you that uh, the creation story lends itself to this idea that to have the knowledge of good and evil means to claim an independence from from creator God and independence from Elohim, the right for us as mankind, the ability to decide for oneself what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is a lie, what is false, what is beautiful and what is ugly. And and when man, when Adam took that fruit and ate it, he took on this degree of autonomy, that we were never, as mankind, were supposed to have. And ultimately, it brought devastating wreckage, not only to Adam's life, but then also to all humanity. I also talk about this because we've all descended from Adam and Eve, and I like to, in our youth ministry, we'll talk about this with the kids, but we'll say, hey, uh, when you get older, some of you will probably marry. And, and then we ask them, well, when you get married, are you going to marry a relative? And of course, you know what the answer is. It's so funny with teenagers. They're all like, what? No way. What are you, that's just, that's just, why would you even suggest that? And then I always say the same thing, right? Well, if you don't marry a relative, then you're marrying an alien, someone not from the human race, because the scripture teaches that we have all descended, that every family on the earth has descended from a single entity, that we have parents, and in that parents, that we have inherited this nature, this darkness, this desire to remain independent from God, the ability to make our own decisions, to declare for ourselves, that is ugly and that is 
beautiful. That is true, and that is a lie, and it happens every single day. To gain that knowledge created a 180-degree turn and cut us off from life itself, from God, from our Creator. And so I believe that uh, Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of what has happened to the world and then also giving Nicodemus in the middle of detention an answer to why is it that some people are hating me and why is it that some are coming and even greater than that, the gospel in and of itself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But when you look at this passage in John chapter 3, and I'm not going to focus on 3.16, but the, the verses after this, Jesus actually transitions out of this huge, beautiful picture of the gospel, one of the most distilled verses in all of the Bible, and then he talks about the knowledge of good and evil and what it looks like in our lives. And he goes into this idea, almost in a judicial sense, of what happens and what it means to have faith or not to have faith and condemnation and not to be condemned and look at what the scripture teaches in it, what he says in here. Whoever believes in me will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. In other words, hey, the world has already been condemned because of the darkness, because of the choice, because of what occurred back in the garden and God in his love is sending an answer into the world. And that answer is his own son. And look at verse 19. This is the judgment. This is that part where we mourn. Because if, if we can take this personally, we can look at it from the macro picture of humanity as a whole. We can look at the news. We can look at the world. We can look at the corruption and all that's going on. And then there's a part of it where we have to take the truth and allow it to actually expel the truth even in our own hearts and lives of what Jesus is teaching here. And what does it say? This is the judgment that light has come into the world, Jesus, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And there it is. He's just telling us straight up that having the knowledge of good and evil has created a heart issue where rather than loving the light, we hate the light because our works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not want to come to the light lest his work should be exposed. We do not want our shame out in the open. We don't want it to be there. It's, it's a disgrace to us, and so what we end up doing is the knowledge of good and evil at work within us begins this process of justifying our darkness because we now have the ability to declare this is right and this is wrong, this is good and this is bad, this is beautiful and this is ugly, and before we know it, we get so twisted up and around, we begin to call right wrong. And what is good, we begin to call ugly. And this is happening. This is our heart. This is what we have going on here. We do not want to come to the light lest our work should be exposed. And then he says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is a sad story. The reality of it is, is that our old man, humanity, individually, we love darkness more than light. And we will justify our sin before we bring it to the cross of Christ. But if we do, it's because of what God has done, Jesus is saying. We hate the light. We are separated from God because of our evil deeds. In the book of Ephesians, it says that we were apart and separated from God and from all of his promises and that we were without hope, that we are walking 
in our sins according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and were children of wrath. And that is what the knowledge of good and evil has done. It's a crazy truth, but it's true. One that we don't like very much because it exposes our darkness. You know, there was a season of time even, and I think society goes through these rolling uh, periods where um, things now today, you know, maybe 30 years ago or 40 years ago, we would never be celebrating things in public. But you know what the Bible teaches? In the, in the book of Psalms, I think it's in uh, Psalm 12, it says that when the wicked strut about on every side when unrighteousness is exalted among the sons of men. And there are seasons when even things that are shameful, clearly shameful, where a society or a group of individuals can begin to endorse in the darkness as a group, celebrate that which is wrong. And then it's not even, a sh- it doesn't, we don't even feel shame anymore about the thing. And then we can even make laws in a nation, can even make laws to endorse that which is shameful. And I'm saying, man, we are a broken people apart from God. That is what Jesus is saying. Now, the beautiful picture is that God hasn't left us there. He sent the light into the world to bring a remedy. All right, now flip over to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. Ezekiel, chapter 16. I don't have time, actually, to go through this whole passage, but uh, it's one of these pictures. It's an allegory, and it's a picture that illustrates, I think, Jesus' teaching, and it makes me wonder if Jesus, in in the conversation that wasn't recorded by the Holy Spirit, how much of this was the Holy Spirit bringing to Nicodemus' memory. He read the scroll. He knew it. And there's other pictures as well. Just like Jesus said, hey, remember the serpent that was lifted up. Remember this. Remember that. This is another picture and a graphic one, a graphic one at that uh, to help us to understand who we are and also to help us to understand who God is. And the reality of it is, is I love the fact that God puts these stories in there time and time and time again, repeating the story over and over and over again so that we will learn to put our hope in him rather than in ourselves, to put our trust in him rather than in ourselves. And here we have it again. So this is a story uh, about God and Israel primarily, but I'm going to say you're going to see this as it, as it unveils. You're going to see how it overlays in the New Testament covenant as well in a beautiful way. So starting in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Now I say that right there. There it is again. The mourning and the celebration. We don't like it when people, even in love, criticize us. You see what I'm talking about? We don't like it. I mean, I immediately put up a defense. I'm like, yo, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, even at home, you know, it's like, ah, 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 no, you're wrong. And then, of course, you go off, and then after a little while, if you come to your, I come, it usually takes me a little time, but I come to my senses, and I'm like, all right, there's a point there. There's a point there, and you lead to repentance, but we don't like that. We don't like it when, when even in loving, constructive ways that our sin is pointed out. And I'm saying that the Bible does this because God loves us. He doesn't want us to be deceived about who we are and he wants to deconstruct our false hope and give us a true one that lends itself to eternal life. So he's saying, hey, 
I, I want Jerusalem to know about her abominations and say, thus does the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites and your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. You know what he's saying there? Hey, look it. You didn't have a pedigree. There wasn't something about your, par- your, per- your parents that lent themselves to being like, whoa, they're going to get special favor from God because of who they are. No, you didn't have any parental uh, beautiful pictures that you can trust in in your past to say that you're going to merit something more than someone else. And as for your birth, look at verse 4, and as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes, No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. I mean, I'm telling you, this is an incredible picture. I think that God, again, metaphorically, allegorically, whatever you want to call it, puts together humanity in such a way where we have marriage and that becomes a gospel picture to us. And then we have children and that becomes a gospel picture to us. Look at this birth. I'm telling you, like, look what he says. Like, your cord wasn't cut, and you were just thrown into a field. I mean, there's a lot of people, even in this room, that you guys have had children. What happens to a child that is born into the world and then cast into a field and doesn't have any help? I'm telling you, the E-Trade baby is not for real. The E-Trade, you know what I'm talking about? Like, children don't come into the world with the ability to operate iPads and create monetary value and get servants to wait on them and then dictate to them, I need you to feed me at this time and change me at this time, they are completely and utterly dependent upon another person to care for them. And that's exactly what God is telling Israel. Like, you were, you were abandoned. Your umbilical cord wasn't even cut. I mean, you were bleeding out in, in your birth. You're bleeding out in the field, and you were completely abandoned. Now look what he says. And when I passed by, verse 6, when I passed by you, I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live. And I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, Behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. That is awesome. That is an incredible, incredible picture. Like, you were born into the world Your parents abandoned you. You had no one to care for. You're laying in the blood in the field. I came by. I, look at, adopted you. I initiated a love relationship with you. I brought you into my home. I cleaned you up. I took care of you. I fed you. I nurtured you. And as you grew, you grew in beauty. And that beauty is not your own. That beauty is a beauty that is directly rooted in the fact that you are relating with me. And when you became old enough, I entered into a marital covenant with you. And I married you. And you became my wife. Is that just incredibly... It's it's just amazing. And I'm telling you, I think he created man and woman. And marriage 
specifically, again, as a metaphor to teach us about his relationship with, with us. This is one of the reasons, by the way, John 3 clearly can teach us. It doesn't take a whole lot of thought to consider this. Why is marriage under attack? Why is it under attack? Because marriage is a picture, although it's a shadow, it is a picture of the light. And thus, in the end, when we begin to cast off the light and we begin to embrace the darkness, this will definitely be one of the things that will come under attack. It will happen. Why? Because we love the darkness more than the light. And we don't want to come into the light lest our deeds would be exposed. But marriage is clearly, you can see here from Ezekiel 16, and there's plenty of other passages, some of you might be thinking right now, Ephesians, right? For Christ's husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, that's what I'm talking about. And in the book of Revelation, the church is referred to, again, even as the New Jerusalem, as a bride, the bride of Christ, adorned. Uh, Paul actually refers to the same thing when he says, hey, I, I, in the preaching of the gospel and in your salvation, you have become a pure bride, the bride of Christ, holy and dearly beloved, adorned in all of your beauty. And you're going to see this as it goes on. God comes and says, I am married to you in a covenant relationship, Israel. It's beautiful. Now look what he says as he goes on. Verse 9. Then I bathed you with water, and I washed off your blood from you, and I anointed you with oil. She even smells good because of God. See what I'm talking about? By the way, there's a New Testament verse for that, right? That we are an aroma of Christ, an aroma of life to those. All right? Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you in silk. In the New Testament, we have been clothed in the white, that, that we will be given white linen robes, in the, and, and this is a declaration of the fact that we are his and that our sins have been forgiven. Verse 11, And I adorned you with ornaments, and I put bracelets on your wrists and chains on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil, and you grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced in royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Isn't that a beautiful, incredible picture of the love of God initiating an adoptive relationship, not just in adulthood, but from the very beginning. It reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4 where it says that before the foundation of the world that he chose us and that he predestined us for adoption into his family to the praise of his glorious grace which has come about because of the passionate work and love of God in his son, Jesus Christ. He has known us. He has destined us. That he has adopted us in our lostness and our beauty and everything that we have in Israel, everything, the gold, the jewels, the nose rings, the, the, uh, the crown on her head, the beauty of royalty, our relationship with the king, Jesus, 
And all of these things are wrapped up specifically in God. Her beauty was not her own. She would have died in the wilderness alone and destitute. That's a picture of our sin. And yet God comes in and with his conquering invasion of love through his son Jesus Christ, even in this picture in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, he's reminding Nicodemus, there is darkness and there is light. And the light has come into the world. And because the light is in the world, there is a conflict going on. It's a conflict that you're going to see socially. It's a conflict that you're going to see physically. And it's a conflict that you're going to feel spiritually as you come up against the truths of the scriptures and the light that they bring into our lives individual and the reality that you cannot live a life that is independent from me. In fact, the Apostle John goes on to say that if we do not have a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that we do not have life. We are a zombie nation apart from him. But those who are in Christ have life. Now, interestingly enough, and I don't have time for the rest of the passage, but look at verse 15 in Ezekiel 16. But you trusted in your beauty and you played the whore because of your renown and, your, and lavished your whorings on any passerby and your beauty became his. That's the sad truth. The reality of it is, is that the knowledge of good and evil has destroyed our ability to think right. And frequently, from time to time, we take that which he has given to us, and rather than acknowledging it, we end up expensing it in selfish ways. Now, the beautiful part about it, and you can read the rest of the chapter, and he goes into uh, extreme details of what actually uh, happens here. And... In the, end of the, in the end of the chapter, he says, verse 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you for all that you have done. So he just, he just lays out in this whole chapter gross, massive sin, the killing of babies, the, the giving of all of her beauty to every passerby, taking his wealth and his jewelry and, and then using it to buy the favors of men and just trampling his love. And in the end, his covenant love, does he give up? Does he give up on us? Oh, no. He's like, you are mine and I have redeemed you. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we can see a picture of our helplessness, of his lavish covenant love, even in the midst of unfaithfulness. We see it there, and in the fact of the reality that God, God's grace superabounds and conquers in covenant relationships. It conquers. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that has been given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is absolutely, stunningly beautiful. There are all kinds of pictures like this through the scriptures. This is just one of them, and uh, it is beautiful. And it is there to teach us that our beauty does not come from us. It comes from him. There's other pictures in the world, too. I have, like, uh, I think that he's created our bodies in such a way that we need food. And that this is a shadow. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out from the mouth of God. Why do we actually pray when we eat? And it's because, Lord, what we're really doing is we're saying, Lord, just like my physical body needs this food to survive, you've made me to be dependent upon it. If I do not eat, I will die. Thus, if I do not have you, the bread of life, I will die. It's the same thing with every time that we take a sip of water and we drink water. It's a remembrance of the fact that we are not beings that were created to live independent. If we do not drink water, we will die. And yet Christ has become living water, has he not? Among other things. This plant needs, it, it cannot survive. If I pull this out of, of its nutrients, out of its dirt, if I, don't, if I neglect it and do not give it water, and do, it does not have sunlight, this plant will not grow into its beauty. This plant is dependent upon the soil. It's dependent upon the atmosphere. It's dependent upon the water. Thus, we also, our beauty is not our own. We are dependent upon God. God is the only being in all of creation and uncreation that lives independent. We are not to be cut off. Taking that fruit in the garden was like us uprooting ourselves from the soil and saying, I'm going to do this life on my own. I'm going to live it on my own. I'm going to do it on my own. And still to this day, even after redemption as believers on this side of the cross, we still wrestle with a degree of independence where we roll back. And God, listen, he's so faithful of teaching us how to depend upon him. Time after time after time. We can, we can stand here and give testimonies of it. Food, nature, I, just, I illustrated the fact that marriage is a picture of it. Children is another picture of the gospel. I'm telling you, it's a picture of, our, of the fact that you know, when our children, babies, need their parents, even as we need God to bring our, us, otherwise we die. Epic stories, both fictional and non-fictional, if they capture our heart, if you connect with the story in some way and it lifts your mind in some way, you, if you think about it, you can see the redemptive picture in it. And it's pointing us towards Christ. And then, of course, there's Jesus. And lastly, I'm going to share this verse. It's out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and this is what it says. But God chose what is foolish in the world. He's initiating the adoption. He sees the baby in the field alone, and he adopts the child. And it grows, and he nurtures that life. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Not in my own beauty, not in my wisdom to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, but we boast in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. God is rerouting us into the nourishing, nutrient, life-giving source, which is himself. It's a covenant relationship. Father, we give you thanks, and we ask that you would
Continue that process, Lord, for those of us who know you, of removing independence from our life, even though it's painful, even though we mourn over it, we need it, and that you would bring us to the point of utter dependence upon you time and time and time again. And Lord, maybe there's people here now that have not taken that step. Lord, they're still wrestling with the knowledge of good and evil and their desire to live apart from you. And Lord, I'm asking for you to give them faith to see that without you, there is no life. Without you, it's like a plant being uprooted from its life-giving source and nutrients and water and food. We need you to live. Help us to boast in you and in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.